So, fun fact. <laughs> Moderately fun fact. and welcome to Emerald Roots official podcast of the Irish Family History Centre and the place to find great chats on all things Irish, family and history. I'm Caitlin Bain and this podcast is for anyone who's ever wondered, am I Irish? What does Guinness really taste like? Who's your one? Welcome back to our latest episode of Emerald Roots. I am Caitlin Bain. I'm here with Fiona O'Mahony and Katie Beeland. Hi, guys. Hey, Caitlin. So last episode, we looked at Bruce Springsteen's Irish family history. Mm. And it's a pretty cool story. It is. If anyone missed it, definitely go and have a listen to that before you listen to this episode. This one... We'll be sitting down with the researchers, Fiona Fitzsimon and Helen Moss, and we're going to talk to the two of them about doing that research. Um, So, let's go. Hi, I'm Helen Moss, and in 2013, we began to very quickly uh, research. Uh, We're under a bit of time pressure, weren't we, Fiona? (laughs) You can say that again. Um, We were given the commission on Tuesday... And he was playing the concert at the weekend. Wow. Um, so this was quite a rush. We did have the advantage that some research had been done already. We knew that the immigrant ancestor was a young woman by the name of Anne Garrity. But we didn't know the names of her parents. We didn't know whether she came by herself from Ireland to the US. Mm. I'm just trying to think of the process as to what we got first, because I think you would have got the first bit of information. The first information we got was Anne Garrity. We were given a family tree. We were asked to verify it. So you verified the tree and then was it... The first thing we did was we verified that the family tree was inaccurate. So it was back to scratch Yeah. and we had to start with Anne Garrity. Oh. Yeah. People had claimed that he was from Mullingar in County Westmeath. So Mm -hmm. we actually found out that he was from Kildare. But that's jumping ahead a bit. Mullingar, the home of Joe Dolan and... Yep. Um, what's the name of the guy from Take That? Niall Horan. Oh, yeah. Is he from One Direction. Or? One Direction. Oh, God, that kid's coming. <laughs> I was like, was there an Irish guy in Take That? I don't One think direction. so. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. Probably, there's, there's probably a Take That person with Irish connections. Ancestry. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah I'm um, sure of that. Okay, so Mullingar, the home of Joe Dolan and Niall Horan. <laughs> but it turned out he wasn't from Mullingar. No. But... That was, like you say, jumping ahead. The first thing we did then was, once we realised it wasn't the right family, we had to start from scratch. Mm. We went back, we looked at Anne Garrity, and we decided the way to go was by contacting the New Jersey State Archive. Mm. And we were very, very lucky because we made contact with Bette Epstein, who's an archivist there. Yeah, uh, Bette was fantastic. Mm-hmm. We explained to her what we were doing, and she swung into action and she found the record we were looking for very quickly and sent it to us. It was a marriage record of Anne Garrity to her second husband. Uh, Patrick Farrell. And it very fortunately referred to Anne Garrity's parents and gave both names and the mother's maiden name. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. So I suppose 
you know, kind of listening to that, the the key thing to take away from that would be very much verify what you're given. Don't assume it's correct. And then it is possible to actually start in the American sources and often that can actually really help to contextualise the Irish ancestor in question. You can get that identifiable information like parents and, and locations. Yeah. Yeah, we call it reverse genealogy. And reverse genealogy is that there's very often more information that survives in the host country about the immigrant ancestor. Um, We can look at things like marriage records or death records. State death records will usually give the name of the deceased person's mother and father, Mm. including the mother's maiden name, where it's known. Um, Or you look at things like who else is buried in a family grave. You look at things like newspaper death notices. Um, in a sense, you're building up a picture of the person mm. um, within their community when they settle mm. in the host country, whether that's America or Canada or Australia or New Zealand or South Africa. Um, we'll even use witnesses to a marriage. Yeah. Mm. But use whatever we can get. <laughs> <laughs> this is part of the methodology, I think, in family history, that the evidence is so slight, but there's very often more surviving evidence in the host country yeah. and mm. so it makes sense to actually see what we can find there and then taking that go back to the Irish records and see if um, we can then pin down with corroborative evidence Yeah, and it's very important because one of the problems we have in Irish research is that we have um, frequently occurring family names mm. and names tend to be quite regional and I'm thinking here O'Donnell and Tyrconnell Sligo in Donegal, <laughs> or McCarthy in Cork, or Donovan in West Cork, mm. Sullivan in Kerry. Um, what am I doing? I'm doing Devery, which is really peculiar <laughs> to Offaly. Really, really specific to Offaly. Okay. Um, yeah. And then Christian names also are can sometimes yeah. be location-specific. Jeremiah, often in Cork. Really? Philip, often in Monaghan. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that. That's yeah, and then interesting. Saints' names. If there's a local saint, you'll often get a concentration of Davids in, is it Wex- Waterford? And Maddox and Aidens in um, North Wexford. Even Moses, which is a version of it. Godmut oh, and Claire. Yeah, Moses yeah. in Wexford. Yeah. Fiac and Kildare. Uh-huh. These are all local saints' names. Yeah. But the thing is that at an earlier time, if you look at the older records, the 16th and 17th, there was a profusion of glorious Irish names that we used alongside the saints' names. Yeah. And then as we assimilated into English culture, Irish people adopted a much narrower range of, mm-hmm. um, I suppose, church saints' names. Mm. And so when you have that, when you have those frequently occurring names... Um, which occur in clusters and regions, along with this narrow range of um, first names. You know, you can actually find um, two men of the same name, two John Lynches married to two Honora Smiths. Mm-hmm. And that is the problem with Irish yeah. family history. And that's why reverse genealogy is actually, it's a, it's a key methodology. Yeah. So we were very lucky to get Anne Geraghty's parents' names because mm-hmm. it meant very quickly that we could identify the parish that she came from. Yeah. Which was with Angan. Well, well, then, then our next step was to look in the baptismal entries to try and find an Angerity with parents, which her parents' name were, was Christopher, which is quite a nice name to have mm. as a 
because it's more unusual than Patrick or Thomas. Christopher Geraghty and Catherine Kelly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I suppose you also have to consider um, when you're looking in the host country, you have to consider the name variants, um, the issue around that, mm. that uh, especially if, if there are kind of questions about literacy, that potentially um, there will be variations. Spelled phonetically, yeah. yeah. And actually that was the case with this one, wasn't it? Because Gerty, <coughs> well, it was called, it was spelled a few different ways, but in when it went to the States, it seemed to be generally spelled, well, specifically for this family, G-A-R-R-I-T-Y. Mm. But... Yeah, Garrett is one of those names you can put apart. You can yeah. do a double R and a double T, and you can use an A or an E in the start. Um, mm. And the thing is that it's not just literacy, it's also the phonetic alphabet somebody has on their ear. If mm. you have somebody of German origin who's recording records in the US, mm. um, and they hear a thick Irish accent, um, well, I could say a thick German accent as well, <laughs> Um, strong German accent. A strong German accent. They'll write down what it is that they hear according to their phonetic register. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you have to take that into account. Yeah. Yeah. Then Helen rolled up her sleeves and oh. got stuck into the research and came back with an entire family of Garrities, including Anne. Including Anne, who was born in 1838. Amazing. So, so that's Bruce Springsteen's. Great, great grandmother. <laughs> so that's and we found the family, and we found um, then actually Fiona, you found although the 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 national school registers. We found that Anne Garrity was the second daughter, and I think she was one of a family of eight, eight children. Yeah, um, most of whom survived to adulthood, and you have to consider, given that they lived through the famine. Mm. Mm. Uh, that wasn't an easy thing but the parish register was marvellous because it told us not only um, it, it told us not only about the other siblings it also told us a townland address okay amazing and is this um, the the national school records is this the family that you noticed that the children were kept in school beyond the age of 11 yeah well the curious thing is that the parish registers gave us the townland address mm-hmm. and then when we found the school registers, we were able to find, and again this comes back to having corroborative evidence mm-hmm. and being able to substantiate every step of the way, we found children of the Garrity family of Mount Prospect Townland, which was, so we could actually definitively say this is the correct mm-hmm. family, uh, with a father Christie. So, you know, children of the right name, they appear mm-hmm. in the baptismal registers, right, the sons of Christie Garrity of Mount Prospect, um, being admitted to Rathangan Boys School. That's cool. And another thing that um, I noticed reading the research was that you you specify that Christopher Garrity and Catherine Kelly they got married before the start of Lent that year, and that is quite specific because it was very common for people to get married around this period because. It was. It wasn't advised, was it, or it wasn't really allowed to be married during the Lent period. Lent was a time of abstinence for everything. Wow. <laughs> you actually chocolate. see. <laughs> I think you're referring to chocolate. <laughs> if you look in the parish registers, you'll actually see that um, the greater number of marriages happen between the end of the agricultural season, so that's end of October, early November, mm-hmm. and continue right the way through 
to the start of Lent every year and then there is virtually nothing. And there's a slow pickup at the end of Lent, at the end of Easter, but um, you see some marriages in the summer season, but the greater mm. number of them mm. are concentrated in that Brilliant. at that particular time. That's really interesting because you, that would be quite, do you think, a, a rural um, tradition or quite an Irish tradition, or is that would that be fairly universal at the time for the time? I think that is something you'll see in every Catholic country. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's a good, good question. Yeah. yeah. If you go back to a much earlier time, there's some parish registers that survive in um, German, Italian mm. parishes before the Reformation, and you'll actually see the same pattern. Okay. I've never seen any study to show that it declined during, um, it declined if countries adopted um, the Reformed Church, so I'm really not sure. But I just know that in Ireland, mm. this mm. is something that we see, and it's not just Catholics, it's... Um, we see all the people basically following, I suppose, in a pattern laid down by the agricultural calendar. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, that's what Lent is, an old feast day based on the Passover. It's fascinating, that history. Mm. There are layers upon layers of mm. traditions that grow up over not just hundreds, but thousands mm. of years. And that... Pagan customs that are incorporated. Yeah. Yeah. There still are pagan customs. If you look at the Celtic, the pre-Christian festival, yeah, and these are things that are observed not only in Ireland. There is so many layers and cultures and traditions. I, I mean, I personally love that about history too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suppose you were able to gain some insight into the life of Bruce Springsteen's ancestor, Christy. And do you think that, like that historical tradition of of um, legacies kind of continuing is it just a complete coincidence that we've got two music maestros in in the same family well we found two things about christy gary so haulier mm-hmm. and funnily when he goes across to the oh. united states he gets the same kind of work yeah yeah and then the second thing which helen found which i loved was <laughs> that that he was a traditional musician. And the difference between the f- don't ask me to explain, but the difference between <laughs> fifes and pipes, you know, yeah. and yeah. a fifer would often come to parties, and you know, mm-hmm. but Christy went round obviously to parties, but he would have done that in Ireland as well. Probably yeah. he wouldn't have just gone to America and taken up music. It would have been something he would probably, in, you know, maybe his father might have played a, a, an instrument, you know, it was a, and he would have been. Uh, a very popular and useful person to have. He's, it sounds as if he was in constant demand. <laughs> he played, he was a Democrat. And yes. He played at <laughs> Democratic every time they actually had meetings. He would play to open up the meeting. Wow. He also played at... Like father, yeah. like great, 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 great grandson. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love the idea of Christy Garrity carrying his pipes yeah. over on the ship with him. Yeah. yeah. But of course, where they're from, Kildare, it has a really strong piping tradition. Okay. That's the whole... So, yeah, that's kind of... It, it very much seems like that's a tradition that he's brought across with him and, and potentially, even if, you know, it wasn't a direct legacy it was influential enough to potentially be to have remnants within um kind of bruce springsteen's direct family that that there was the the yeah, social the, element the of the yeah. the music and and you know and then also having 
the music connected with the political side of things, the political yeah. political sphere, and speaking using music as a voice almost, mm. um, which they seem to ha- to hold in common anyway. Mm. The funny thing is, I remember the very first Bruce Springsteen song I remember hearing was "The River." Yeah, yeah. I was wondering whether you were going to say "The River" because that was such a big hit over here. It was a huge hit. Yeah. But I remember thinking that on the one hand it was rock and roll, on the other hand. It was the kind of song that my granny might have listened mm. to. It mm. was a Kamalia. Yeah. And I remember thinking at the time what a strange and fantastic mix it was. <laughs> it almost shouldn't work. Yeah. Because I was getting to the time where I didn't want to like the Furies. <laughs> although they've got the best melodies. But uh, do you know when you're a teen and you kind of begin wondering, you want rock and roll rather than tradition? Um, but suddenly listening to... Suddenly listening to that and it kind of... Uh, Mm. But possibly, I I don't know whether they maintained a music tradition within the family, mm. but we can say with certainty there was a music tradition yeah. back that yeah. number of generations. That's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. I'll ask you one last question, if that's okay, and then um, I'll leave you off. Um, I suppose just, do you guys have any takeaways or any learning kind of experiences from this project or... Um, like what's what's the thing that you remember I suppose when you look back at your starting the work in 2013 and, and talking about it now always verify your starting point mm. always make sure you have the correct information and the correct individual don't just jump for a person of that name who happens to be in the registers make sure you've got enough corroborative evidence a father's name, a mother's maiden name a place of origin like a townland, an occupation, something that allows you to completely disambiguate your person of interest from their doppelgangers. And once you've done that, yeah. once you're on solid ground, then you can start to push your way, to move your way through the through the records. It's pretty fantastic advice. <laughs> um, also that family histories will always keep giving like I don't we didn't have available all the newspaper Mm. reports mm. so that when we went looking again it, the story kept giving you know yeah. it's it, 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 we like to think that always we can there's never a definitive story it's a story that will keep you know yeah progress continuously growing yeah. there's always something to learn oh that's amazing thank you guys so much for sitting down with me and talking about this and um Yeah, I'll talk to you next time. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. All right, thanks, Thanks, everyone. Thanks, bye. Welcome back, everyone. That was me talking to Fiona Fitzsimons and Helen Moss about researching Bruce Springsteen's Irish roots. Really is an interesting story. And the thing that's vital to take away from that, I think, is just verify your research how important it is if you want to do accurate genealogical research Mm, if you want to do accurate family history research you have to verify in the records never assume that something you're given is accurate always double check confirm and who knows you might actually find some of that really useful identifying information while you're doing that verification process exactly and that can really help place you in a location that can place you in a occupation that can help place you in a religion that confirm what you've already learned or what you've been given or let you know that actually you may need to pivot a little bit yeah 
yeah, a lot of times we see in the centre people come in. You know, we take a lot of things for granted because we live here in Ireland and obviously this is our job. But if somebody comes into us in the centre and they sit down and they are trying to crack, you know, a mystery in their family and we are able to go in and say, okay, start at the beginning. Let's strip it right back to the basics and look at what information do we have just simply from the name or where they lived or the, you know, name of the townland they lived in. So that can be, that can be it. That can be all we need to get going on the project. So having the ability to give somebody the context, that's a huge tool that we have for the centre. Hello and welcome to Diamonds of the Diaspora. Our spotlight on Ireland's exotic global descendants. I'm Bridget McCone, editor of Irish Lives Remembered, the official online magazine of the Irish Family History Centre at Epic Museum. Today, our first featured diamond, Rodolfo Walsh, father of Argentinian investigative journalism. Part 3, The Death of Rodolfo Walsh. On March 24th, 1977, Rodolfo Walsh, father of Argentine investigative journalism and great-grandson of Westmeath immigrants to Argentina, mailed his famous open letter from a writer to the military junta. Minutes later, he was ambushed at a crossroads in Buenos Aires when a so-called task force of soldiers opened fire on him with a machine gun. After the shootout, his body was taken and its location is still unknown, with Walsh becoming one of the very disappeared on whose behalf he had struggled for so many years. Rodolfo Walsh is a shining example of moral courage and humanity in the darkest times, as well as commitment to truth in journalism. A true diamond of the diaspora. To watch a short documentary on his life and listen to his famous open letter to the military junta, join our Patreon, Irish Lives Remembered at patreon.com. You can also find out more about the Irish in Argentina in the Winter 2020 Issue 51 of Irish Lives Remembered magazine, as well as our upcoming Spring 2023 issue, where we tell the story of Catalina Bullfin, Irish-Argentine wife of Sean McBride. Until next time, shine bright like a diamond. Bridget, that was incredible. I am... So visiting Argentina now. I recommend it for the tango as well. <laughs> <laughs> good food, good music, good dance. And now an Irish hero. Mm, absolutely. I mean, he is one of, along with Anna Politkovskaya in Russia, along with a couple of very few other really crusading journalists who stood up for human rights in that way under times of such great oppression. Mm. I loved, uh, that's what I loved about the story was he really was bringing a voice to the voiceless. Mm -hmm. Do you think that his Irish heritage could have played a part in his, um, his determination to find justice for those that have been silenced by Mm -hmm. powers? Well, I mean, it's certainly possible. 
that uh, the Irish, for example, as we know, set up hedge schools. So they set up their own informal networks to teach their culture and their language at a time when they were uh, not permitted to do so in the official school system. So the idea of having an informal network of journalists where hand-copied news was circulated, that is part of the tradition of resisting official decrees, resisting official prohibitions in order for the people to create their own culture and to create their own, uh, how would I say, sense of self-awareness. Mm. And that's it when you were talking about his his parents or his grandparents, sorry, living through the famine and how there was the human kind of um, price of the neglect and then very much thinking, and that's exactly what Rodolfo, I suppose, is is working against. He's he's trying to make them accountable and, and mm. make the voices heard um, and make sure that they don't fall through those gaps. So Rodolfo Walsh's open letter to the military junta, one of the remarkable things about that letter was that he wasn't simply talking about the disappeared, the political prisoners, the high profile people who had been purged. He was also very much concerned with talking about the impact that the military rule was having on the ordinary people. So again, we see with Rodolfo this preoccupation with the idea that everybody counts. Uh, the central concern of government should be taking care of people, not people taking care of government. And that's really interesting as well, I suppose, mm. just because that was a time period where a lot of the big thinkers weren't thinking of the individual mm. in politics. It was very much the grand scheme of things. It was sacrifice a few to save the many or sacrifice um, these people to create the the great mother nation or I mean the takeover by the military junta was after the revolution in 1955 so you had just had uh, the whole fascist in uh, fascism in Europe obviously you still had Franco in Spain so if you think about Latin America it's very influenced by Spain and Portugal they both have dictators at this point Franco and Salazar you've just defeated Hitler you've just defeated Mussolini Stalin is now running across East Europe and imposing dictatorship onto those countries. And a lot of people were cheering Stalin on because they thought, great, you know, communism will solve people's problems, but it will solve it in this centralized way through government schemes, not through protecting the self-determination of individuals. Yeah. And so I think that's why someone like Rodolfo Walsh is very important because you start to see the wave of dictatorship that came in Latin America came after the Second World War, most of it, there was a whole wave in Brazil as well, in Argentina, in various other countries. There was a rise of dictatorship during that period. And um, with Rodolfo Walsh, you see very much someone who is fighting for the dignity of the individual mm. and free speech, freedom of expression, civil yeah. liberties. And he really was, I suppose forward thinking for the time you know mm -hmm. that that kind of mentality we take as given now but back then definitely not the case he's definitely my favorite diamond so far yeah he is the first diamond <laughs> so we will have to see whether the second diamond can knock him from his perch well exactly i mean it's a hard one to beat so we'll yeah, see we'll we have see. set a high standard for the beginning <laughs> absolutely out the gate we're, we're going strong um thank you bridget that was amazing you're very welcome <laughs> see you next time I'll be there. I just love, I loved talking to Helen Fiona about um, their process researching 
Um, and I loved the kind of the main vibe I got, I suppose, coming away from it is that it is possible. Yeah. You know, I know a lot of people seem to think that Irish family history research can be this big intimidating thing and it's impossible. But it, the amount of people that come into us and say, but the, the records were all destroyed in a fire. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not the case. No. no. And um, and it is possible, but it is a skill set. Yeah. Completely. I mean, Fiona and Helen are at the top, 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 top end of that of that skill set. They yeah. have every skill that you could possibly want yeah. For, yeah. For, for doing that research. They know yeah. where to look and they know what they're looking for. Yeah. And that's the main important thing with Irish research that I think so often because our records are hidden away on little sites and they're in less easy to access places, it can seem more difficult, but that, that's where we come with, in. With, with planning. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and our help, it's, it's possible. Yeah, yeah. And this is kind of the reason we did this podcast was to, I suppose, get that message out there that, that it is possible. Um, we will help you where we can. We will give you contextual information of the, the things that have happened in Ireland that impact the records. We'll also give you information on those records. Um, but And we'll also talk just about our experiences. So, um, you know, we're building, I suppose, a community, hopefully through this, mm-hmm. of people who can share those experiences and can come to us and tell us about their experiences. So if you do ever, you know, hit a brick wall, have a query, you know, kind of have an have an experience of something that really made you think, wow, like success. Mm-hmm. Let us know. We'll, mm. you know, we'll let we'll other people hear know. from you. We mm-hmm. absolutely would love to hear your stories. Yeah. Yeah. And if you have something that a way that you found to get around a problem that you think might help somebody else, reach out to us because we'll share that, you know. We're always looking to hear new tips and tricks as well. You can never stop learning with absolutely. Irish family history. Never. That that was another thing was that that just kind of the constant there's always new information. Yeah. yeah. From, you know, whether it's contextual, whether it's like, you know, kind of a record, there's mm. always something new. Yeah. That can be the key to unlocking that family history that you've had. So definitely possible keep going yeah and let us know your stories on it yeah and okay. if you get stuck reach out to us and we'll help absolutely www.irishfamilyhistorycenter.com <laughs> a shameless plug <laughs> well <laughs> all right well thanks uh thanks everyone for listening again this week and thank you both uh for sitting down with me fiona and kaylee thank you um thank you. and we will catch you on the flip side bye bye, <laughs> bye. Thank you for listening to Emerald Roots Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to follow us on our socials and keep an eye out for future content.